Welcome to Hashtag No Filter with me, Stephanie Nay, a podcast which provides career advice from industry experts. Every episode, you'll hear how each trailblazing guest built success and what they do to bring a sense of wellness into their world. You're listening to real people with real stories, with real success, and who need no filter. Welcome to Hashtag No Filter, where we talk about creative and luxury brands and speak to entrepreneurs to learn how they have grown their businesses to success. Joining me today is Rosamund Marafji, entrepreneur, luxury fashion and beauty expert, brand ambassador and TV presenter. So welcome to Hashtag No Filter, Rosamund. It's fantastic to have you here. Thank you so much for having me and inviting me on your show. I'm super excited to be here today. Well, I'm so excited to have you on the show, Rosamund. And I'm going to let you introduce yourself in just a moment, but I'll just give a brief overview of your career history and journey. Um, So you started out your career working for Tom Ford himself, headhunted by Juicy Couture and dressed, just to name a few, Queen Rania of Jordan, whose style I love, Kate Moss, Gwyneth Paltrow, Madonna, Kate Winslet and Sienna Miller. Went on to found RR Co, where you have represented everyone from Gavinci, Tom Ford, and Christian Louboutin. Offer a plethora of services, including styling, brand advisory, and niche events. You're also an active committee member in Bras for Cause, one of Middle East's most influential women. Named as one of the 100 most influential Asians by ITP, you're an advocate for female empowerment and women in business and a role model to women all around the world. So I'm just going to give you a round of applause for all of that. First of all, thank you so much, but I hope you can just tell how old I am because I could only accomplish these things with uh, years and time. So Absolutely not. You know, you know what they say about working smart not hard I feel like this is exactly what you have done super efficient super productive you know from all the research that I've done about you um it comes across like you are very confident in your decisions and you have what it seems like you have just you know really taken the bull bite horns and um you know made a badass career for yourself so Massive congratulations on everything that you have accomplished and everything that you are doing for women in business as well. I think that is incredible. Um, During today's episode, we're going to be talking about Rosamond's career journey and how aspiring fashion entrepreneurs can begin to build success. And this includes a discussion on how to make the most of mentors, how to network effectively and how to build a name for yourself. We're also going to learn exactly how Rosamond built her business to success and what young professionals should consider when launching their business. And towards the end of the interview, we're going to be having a chat about fashion, well-being and the working woman. No so Rosamond, would you like to introduce yourself and the story behind RR and Co.? First of all, thank you so much again for having me and thank you for the very kind introduction. And again, I think it goes down to like over 20 something years of experience. So that's kind of really accumulated to where I am today. Uh, One of the things I always say is that you never know where life takes you. So you have to be really present in that moment because it could be just having a boss or a mentor and just being really present there to learn how they're doing decisions. And I feel like you know, I was really lucky to have um, 
you know, I was headhunted by Tom Ford by second year university. I went to study at London College of Fashion in the UK. And as much as I wanted to leave school in my second year, because I just wanted to work with like the guy who I'd done, you know, essays on and case studies, my parents were like, you're not finishing university. And they were so amazing. I did a, a like a, I ended up interning in the press office. So between classes, I was interning. And then when I handed in my dissertation, I joined him in his office. Um, so it was his, him, his PA, and then myself. But, you know, one of the things I always say is that when I look back at my career and um, I'm in my early forties now, and I look back, I can actually see how things have happened. If that makes sense, when you actually stop and it was almost like a, a puzzle. Like I started realizing because I was in my early twenties working for Tom Ford, crazy hours, you know, you can't shut off your phone. You're right in the heart of like fashion and, you know, working for this billion dollar company and, you know, he was like the, he still is like, he just, you know, whatever he touches turns into gold. And I was just constantly learning from him. So as much as I went to an amazing university, I can tell you that I learned more from him than I did in university because I saw how he managed people, how he made decisions about, you know, commercial decisions, um, how he styled, how he worked with his team. Um, also at that point, he was vice president of Gucci group, with, which had all the brands under it. So Alexander McQueen, Stella, Bouchon, for example. Um, and then he was obviously creative director of Saint Laurent. So to be in an environment where you're with someone who is so decisive, you know, it's funny when you just mentioned you're calling me decisive. I used to think, oh my God, like, you know, to have that pressure of making the final decision or that your, your signature is on the line for everything, right? It only happened when I had my own company because at the end of the day, I started getting a team as the company got bigger and bigger. I had a team. And at the end of the day, it's my name on the company sign. It's my name on the business card. I'm the one signing the contracts and everyone comes to me for leadership. So it's really important to really, for me to really be focused and say, okay, you know, what is my gut instinct? What are the consequences? What are like, I really had to work at things before I kind of made that, made that decision. And I think leadership skills and, and mentorship, all of that comes into play through experience. It doesn't happen overnight. Um, but I will tell you, I, I know you asked me a really like a interesting question, but you know, I moved to Dubai 15 years ago. I never thought I was going to move to Dubai after Juicy Couture. Um, I got a job at Dior in the UK and I didn't even take that job because I was, I did all the interviews, everything happened. And they're like, can you start in October? And I was like, cool. And I went to the office and saw everything. I went to Paris for the training and I went to Dubai for three weeks because um, my family were building a house. And my dad's like, can you just manage this like in the summer? And I was like, cool. So I went there for three weeks. And as much as I'd been traveling to this region before for like holiday and work, those three weeks, my whole world had shifted because people started calling me and not just anyone, like my ex-colleagues started calling me and they were like, Roseman, can you do me a favor? Can you just go into our store? So everyone had, you know, everyone kind of had, moved to designer brands. And if you imagine 15 years ago, they had a franchise structure. So it wasn't a joint venture in the emerging market. It was very much, they franchised their brand. And so a lot of ex-colleagues of mine in the Gucci group world were like, Rosman, you're in Dubai, would you mind doing me a favor? And I was like, sure, what is it? They're like, can you go into, you know, X, Y, and Z brand? Um, you know, here's 500 pounds, buy a pair of shoes, but tell me, you know, what does the store look like? What does the buy look like? Um, 
you know, does the sales assistant know the name of the creative director? Do they know how to explain what the bag material is? Do they know the difference between Napa leather? Do they know what a Ramona bag is? Like whatever it was. And, you know, at the end of the day, a luxury consumer should have the same experience in London, Paris, or New York, or wherever they shop, right? Like it, it should only be tweaked a little bit. And because of my training in the Tom Ford era, he really taught me how to look at a collection and I could see what was commercial and what was editorial. So he'd really trained my eye. And, I, and that's really what took me to Juicy Couture as well, because after my five years at Gucci and I, I moved to Milan with the design team, I moved back and, and setting up Juicy was, you know, really an exciting role because back then it was valued at a billion dollars on the New York Stock Exchange. It was a brand everyone was talking about. And when they headhunted me for that, my role was to rebrand them, launch um, all the new categories like menswear, kidswear, all of that. But can you imagine in, in a brand like Juicy, which is pretty premium mass brand, there were hundreds and hundreds of samples. And again, my skill set was I could look at a collection of five, 600 samples and break it down to be like, okay, this is what's going to do. This is what's going to work for the aspirational client. This is what's going to work for editorial. This is what's going to work commercially. And so my, again, like my, through different jobs, my eye kept training and training. So fast forward, when I end up in Dubai, I started realizing I'd walk into a store and be like, why is there so much bling? Like everything was like, you know, crystals and embellishment. And what I realized was this emerging market was changing. Women were starting to work. When you go in the financial district, you started seeing women going to work. They needed a classic black pair of heels. They didn't need crystals in the afternoon, you know? So I started writing back to, you know, my ex-colleagues and friends and being like, listen, I, you know, there's sales signs of her. I think we should focus, you know, I think you guys should focus more on, um, you know, customer, like, you know, tra customer training, um, client retention, how to really build the database and really understand who this customer is. Because this was an emerging market that was very much evolving. You know, they, they were building malls, you could see residential towers going up. So I could see this trend of um, really a city that was just going to mushroom. And so I started taking note, but then what happens is you do it for one friend and then another friend and another friend. So my name started getting passed around and it was all literally all my ex-colleagues who were working at different brands. They were like, would you mind doing me a favor? Walk into the store. Just tell me like, what's the experience like? Now, when it happens one, two, three times by the fourth and fifth time, I got a call from um, a luxury brand in New York. And they were like, Rosman, we're opening Tiffany's in, you know, we're opening Tiffany's in Dubai and not just any store. We're already existing, but we're opening in the world's largest mall. And that's called Dubai Mall. And I could see the construction up in Dubai Mall. So they were like, listen, we need someone who has European, like North American, European experience, luxury experience. Um, this was 15 years ago, you can imagine. So they were like, we're bringing the yellow diamond. We have the CEO coming. We have the gemologist coming. And we want you to come up with a concept, do the PR for us, um, and then do consumer events. Now that was like an aha moment because for me, I went to the school of Tom Ford, right? So for me, I was like, this is amazing. What to me, what is Tiffany's? It's the romance of the blue box. It's a New York jazz night. It's breakfast at Tiffany's. So we came up with a whole, um, you know, three day event. Uh, we, we did the first breakfast at Tiffany's. We brought the beautiful yellow diamond. We invited clients to learn about um, the history of the brand. Um, we did a beautiful jazz night, which proceeds went to a local charity here. And it was the first time that this region had ever seen something like this, because at that point, 
everyone was spending millions and millions of dollars doing events. And, you know, when it was a party, it was like three, four, 500 people. Roseman comes along to the city and I was like, no, we want 30 top tier ladies, you know, like all the women are, um, we know their background, we know what they're, you know, we profiled them, we wanted them to have an experience, they were all luxury consumers, um, we did dinner with the, you know, ambassador, um, the American ambassador and like the CEO and the gemologist, and again, it was like a 20 person dinner, but, you know, with businessmen, and everyone was just profiled, so the whole idea was, you know, quality over quantity, and so that really sparked in the, um, in the city here, so people started talking, uh, because they were so used to these big events. And what we wanted to do was give consumers this ultimate experience, a way to say, one, thank you for shopping with this brand, or two, we know you love luxury jewelry or high-end jewelry. Let me show you about Tiffany's and why this brand is so important or the history behind it. So um, that was kind of our big, that was kind of the big moment that RR and Co made a splash. In addition to that, what I realized was in this market, they didn't have showrooms. So, you know, I, I don't know if you know, in, most PR offices or sampling, they have sampling rooms. So you don't really take from the store. You borrow a sample from the sample closet and, you know, you can have the model roll in the desert. It doesn't matter because it's a sample. So I started realizing, I was like, how are these photo shoots getting done? Like with all these big brands. And they were always either borrowing from the store or they were shipping from Europe. So it, it'd be really tight schedule when they had to ship back and if something got stuck in customs. So I was like, okay, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to open the first multi-brand showroom. And I think that's another reason it caught attention because I recognized the niche in the market. And, um, and that niche was that there was no multi-brand showroom. And so we opened this before, while well, everyone had um, franchisees. So our clients were Burberry, for example, Christian Louboutin, Tom Ford, Givenchy, um, Cara Ross, Graf like we just had this incredible lineup of brands. Um, so yeah, that's kind of what, how R&Co started. And then how did, and then off of R&Co, how did you move into the um, TV presenting? Yeah, so, you know, it's funny about an emerging market is that an emerging market is constantly changing. So as much as my story of R&Co is so glamorous, there's always a moment where you have to reflect and decide when is a good time to close it down. So, but was it before I shut it down? But so while I opened R and Co. and it took off, and I had this glamorous office overlooking Burj Khalifa and downtown and all of that. The first by the first year or first year and a half, like the first kind of 15, 16 months I was here, I got a call from um, the local TV station from a producer. And she was like, Rosman, you know, no one has your experience when it comes to fashion and celebrities um, and dealing with high profile people. Like we saw your, you know, we saw that you moved to town and we have a TV show called Studio One, which is literally like Good Morning America or in, in the UK, it'd be like these morning shows, you know, like these, um, like, whatever, like these guys. Yeah, like, uh, you know what I'm talking about? like these morning, morning talk shows. Uh-huh. Yeah, so, um. So, there, so this one was like that kind of format, like this talk show format, but it would be in the evening. So the highest, the highest viewership was in the evening. So it was an English station. And, and back then, um, Fridays were, were the weekend. So Thursday was like the Friday night kind of thing. You know, it was like the start of the weekend. So they're like, we want to give you a 15 minute live slot on TV every Thursday, call it what you want. Um, but we want you to talk about fashion events that are happening around the world. And we want to talk about, sorry, that's my cat. <laughs> sorry. 
um and with the, sorry about that so um can you hear my cat meowing yeah, I love um, that he's making a uh, his own debut on hashtag yeah I think he just wants attention because he can see that like I'm talking to you um so they called me to do this show and it was my first time being on tv and they were just like Rosemary we just want you to talk about like what things you like in, in the stores, what, what's trending, because what was happening is on the weekends, there'd be a huge insurgent of people that were traveling on the weekends to come to Dubai to start shopping. So I started getting airtime. Like, can you imagine? This is all pre-social media. So 15 minutes every Thursday, I would have to talk about beauty, fashion trends, uh, red carpets. I would cover the film festival for them. So can you imagine? I have RN Co. in the morning. Every Thursday, I have this show. And then I get a, another call and the call is from the publishers of Harper's Bazaar. And they're like, we just bought the franchise for Harper's Bazaar. We're calling this magazine Harper's Bazaar Arabia. And can you imagine, this was my dream to be an editor of a magazine. Like that was my, if you ask me at any age, it was my dream to just work at a magazine. How could I work at a magazine when I had a running office with like the biggest brands in the world? I now had a team of people working for me. I was like, I can't. Like this company was just mushrooming. So Harper's were so amazing. They were like, listen, we want you involved in, in our company. So I ended up being like a consultant for them. So it was more like an editor, editor at large role. So it was me very much um, hosting the reader events, working on the supplements. So we created the best dress supplement, covering the red carpets, um, creating content for the magazine, like highlighting profiles of, um, just incredible women that were part of my network and really just building the brand of Harper's here. So I was, I am actually very proud to say that I, I was with the magazine for 13 years and now I'm just um, a luxury editor. So I come on as a consultant for them now, but I was with them full-time for, for 13 years on all their activations from world of fashion to best dress. And it was such an incredible opportunity. And I think, you know, that's one of the other lessons that I always want to get across is that like, you know, opportunities will come in a market that is adapting. Like I'm so thrilled that I had my, my daytime job was luxury brands. My TV show for 15 minutes was like, I got to talk about what I was passionate about, which was like beauty and fashion. And then I was with Harper's. So it was a real 360 because the brands I, you know, was working with, I had an opportunity to give them exclusive access in the magazine, for example. Um, and it just really worked out, but fast forward six years in, the government structure changed. Okay, so what was happening was they didn't have to have franchise partners anymore. Brands would come in and have their own setup, so their own joint venture. So Burberry was Burberry Middle East, Chanel was Chanel Middle East, uh, Christian Louboutin was Christian Louboutin Middle East. They didn't need to have RR and Co anymore because they don't need the fancy office, they don't need the fancy showroom. They could do everything in-house in their beautiful offices. And so the government structure changed. And I remember getting audited. Um, I brought an external team in to look at my business. And I said, what am I going to do? Because, you know, these were like my, my big clients. They were consistent. They're on retainers. Um, and I remember the consultant said to me, he goes, well, Rosman, you know, the next trend in the Middle East is F&B. You know, all the biggest brands are coming to the region from the Zumas and Roca and all these brands are coming to the region. Uh, why don't you go into F&B? And I, and, you know, I sat there and I did, I said, what is my brand? Like, what is RR and Co? And what is the Roseman brand? Because it's my name on the company. And 
99% of my business is women. So it's, it speaks to women. It gives consumer experiences, you know, it's afternoon tea with Alice Temperley. It's an exclusive collection, um, that women get first access to from Bottega Veneta or, or Fendi, for example. So we were doing these experiences for women, uh, which were beautiful curated events. So like, you know, dinner with Sylvia Fendi, for example, with like top 30 clients. And so we were doing these incredible experiences, but I don't really drink. I don't want to have a job that's really in the evenings. Cause if you work in F and B, it's very evening focused and restaurant focused. Um, and it's very alcohol, you know, focused. So everything is about alcohol sponsorship and parties and all of that. And I was like, that's not me. So I really made that tough decision to close down the PR office six years into the business. And it was really hard. And I will tell you again, the lesson I learned here is that I thought that defined me because I was never an entrepreneur. I was always working in the corporate side, right? Like I was always working for Gucci group. And then from Gucci group, I went to uh, Juicy Couture and Liz Claiborne. And then I was just about to join Dior until I made this like three week, you know, looking over a construction site, my life changed. So I always came from a corporate environment and I literally panicked because I was like, oh my God, when people, people know me as Roseman, like PR director or PR owner, you know, owner of media relations firm. And I had to stop and it was so hard for a few months. And I remember waking up going, you know what, that doesn't define me. What defines me is who is Roseman? What do I bring to the table? So I bring these incredible experiences to women from a lifestyle. You know, what are the charities I support? What do I love doing? I, over time, after being on TV and working with Harper's, I had like a show called Bizarre Beauty. I was hosting all the readers events on stage. I realized I loved being on stage. I loved being able to talk to the readers. I enjoyed you know, being at a charity gala and raising money for them and like knowing that you made a difference. Like that was my new, that's what made me happy. So it wasn't about having a title or a business card, you know, like, so I think it was these pivotal moments that I started looking in my career going, oh, it's, it's one chapter closing. But imagine if I didn't take that job at Dubai One, you know, to do a 15 minute segment, which really like, you know, even the payment for that literally covered my expenses to go back and forth. It wasn't even about the money. It was about just this incredible experience of having someone listen to my, you know, choice of beauty picks for the week or my fashion picks or, you know, my best dressed of, uh, you know, the Met Gala or like, you know, Cannes Film Festival. Like it was just fun to be able to share my like experience or my feedback with viewers. And so that's why I always say, like, you never know where life is going to take you. Because I, if I didn't have that experience on the TV show, if I didn't take the Harper's Bazaar consultancy role um, to be in the office, you know, all the time and, and create incredible content for readers, it wouldn't take me to where I am today. So I like, it's almost like kind of listening to your story as well, right? Like, you just never know where your life takes you. Um, so I know it's a really long-winded answer, but it is years of, of accumulated experience that has really got me to where I am today. I think it's a, a fascinating um, story and career journey that you have um, or have and having. Um, it, you know, you're clearly very passionate about what you do and your work seems like it gives you a whole lot of energy to the point where it's not actually work. Um, and what you were saying, um, you know, during your answer about, um, 
you know, not really, you didn't have a goal as such to create your own business. You wanted to be an editor. Um, and although you wanted to be an editor, you still gave, you know, 110% um, in jobs that, you um, in like the mystery shopping kind of thing that you were doing, giving you 110% um, all the time. You know, it's these little things that you don't think are making a big picture, but really they are. So by you um, doing these things, making a, a, a very positive reputation for yourself has led you to, in, like, to get your dream job. I mean, I think it's a lot of people's dream jobs, if I'm being honest. Um, and I just, yeah, I think that you are a, um, you are just the picture of what giving your all can get you in life so yeah I think that it's a fantastic um example that you have um that you have given and you know what you're still doing no I definitely enjoy I enjoy what I'm doing because like I for me like I love being able to work on different projects all the time like one day I could be um emceeing a trunk show for like a beautiful luxury brand and you know, always meeting new people. And the next day I could be doing like a charity gala, for example, you know, so like, I love what I'm doing and that every day is so different, but I will tell you, like, I really, I used to call myself an accidental entrepreneur. Right. And like, so when I was looking at like press interviews that I'd done for like the past 10, 12, whatever years, I'd be like, Oh, I'm this accidental entrepreneur. And honestly, what I realized, you know, when I was 40, um, so I turned 40 March 13, 2020. And March 6th, I was invited to speak at UK Parliament at the House of Lords for Women's Day. And when I got the call, I was so nervous because, you know, you have to get the speech approved by like the team before you, you speak at, at, um, at House of Lords. And, and uh, they wanted to talk about my my background being a British citizen and, you know, what it was like to go to school in the UK and kind of what I've done in this emerging market. And as I sat there, uh, my brother helped me really write the speech because it could be exactly five minutes. It couldn't go a second over. And so he was helping me really refine this speech. And it was the first time, can you imagine, when I was 40, I sat there and like wrote my entire career lifespan and not even my career span, my childhood span. And so when I used to call myself an accidental entrepreneur, it was because I was, you know, I thought you go to school, you get a job in a corporate, you know, you corporate world and you climb the ladder and that that's your life. And then this trip to Dubai kind of just changed my world. But what I realized is my parents were immigrants from East Africa. My dad was educated in the UK. Um, they were born in East Africa. They were exiled because of Idi Amin. They ended up deciding to settle in Canada, starting from scratch. They were only allowed a suitcase each and they built their life from scratch. And so my sister was born in, in Kampala. My brother and I were born in Canada and there's a huge different age difference between my sister and I, because my parents were like, we're not going to bring kids into the world until we are settled again. So my parents had to start their, you know, start working, start building their wealth again to like be able to afford a home on their own and rent and buy a home and all of that stuff. Right. And I realized, like, I look at my parents and they were never nine to five people. My dad was literally you know, starting working like crazy so he could make sure we were in the best schools. We had the, you know, clothes on our back, the, bo the books we needed. We could be in extracurricular activities, like all of this. Like I look back like, oh my God, how did he do that? Like, it's crazy. My mom was supporting my dad in Africa. She was a home ec teacher. 
And in Canada, she was just literally helping my dad build the business. But again, watching my mom, like always on call, helping my dad run to the office, et cetera. When you're in an environment that's not nine to five, you realize like your, your mindset is around entrepreneurs, right? Like it's like everyone's building their, their life. And, and so even when I started working for Tom Ford, as much as we were in a structured corporate environment, like the ceiling was corporate, he was an entrepreneur. It was like, you know, he'd wake up in the morning and have this amazing idea. He's like, guys, we're running with this, or, you know, this is what I want for the ad campaign, or this is what, this is what bag I want to design. And so you're constantly around on, for me, I was, I didn't realize I was constantly around entrepreneurs. And so I don't know how to work nine to five. I really don't like, I, I like, I always have a notepad next to my desk. You know, if I can solve a problem in the middle of the night, I will, or I come up with my best ideas at random times. Um, so, you know, I just think like people who are creative, you just never know. You have to be able to um, extract that creativity and see how you can make it flourish. Like whether you make it flourish in your daytime job or an extracurricular job, you should be able to um, really embrace it. Yeah, yeah. Very inspiring, very creative. I love everything that you have done. Um, so just rewinding now a little bit, yeah. would you be able to uh, perhaps give us uh, maybe an insight into your experience whilst you were studying at school at the London College of Fashion? Yeah, so I did a course called um, Fashion Management, uh, which was a BA at London College of Fashion. So the campus was, we were between two campuses in Mayfair. So one was at Oxford Circus and the other one was um, kind of where the Bond Street station is. I, mean, I, I think they stopped the building there. I just went blank on the street. Um, so I, we were the second year of graduate. So when I went for the interview to take that course, they had just finished the first year. They were only accepting 50 students and the classes were broken up into a and B, so um, 25 students in each batch. So you never really cross the other students, to be honest, um, unless it was like a big, like a big presentation. Otherwise, it was um, 25 in, in each class. And what was really amazing about it, and um, you know, there's still a, two or three professors that I'm still in touch with with the alumni, is that because I was the second batch in that program of fashion management. We still did the economics course and computer science and business case studies, but our case studies were fashion brands. Um, they were like, you know, they were everything from like Marks and Spencer, Tessie Lauder, Gucci or whatever it was. But what I did, because I was so passionate about the luxury industry, like Estee Lauder was like my dream company to work for. Obviously, Tom Ford and Gucci Group was my dream company to work for. I actually told my the dean of my program, I said, listen, like, you're constantly changing this program because they were kind of doing trial and error to refine it, which is one of the reasons they didn't take more than 50 students because they were like, we started this program and we want to see what works and what doesn't work. So I actually told them right from the start, I said, whatever case studies you give me, please give me examples that I can do that are luxury brands. So as much as some some of my other like students in the class might've got Primark or some other brand. I made sure they, get, I said, you know what? I will do that case study on marketing, for example, but I want it to be Estee Lauder. Like I want to just understand the luxury market. And they were so amazing like that. Like they were just blown away because they were like, oh, we want a student who's assertive and who understands what they want. And that's exactly what I did. So the, there were three professors that really guided me in making sure that when I 
you know, wrote dissertations or presentations, everything was around luxury. And also the other, you know, whoever's listening, to be honest, you know, I, I moved from Toronto to London and I didn't know how long I was going to stay in Europe. It was super expensive. It was, um, you know, for one pound was $3 when I went there. That's a lot of money. And I was, I ended up having like a part-time job because I was like, there's no way my parents can like afford this after tuition and allowance for rent and all of that. So I started doing these part-time jobs, but I was very strategic of which jobs I took. So I made sure that I did an internship at Sotheby's. I worked at Burberry head office in Haymarket street as um, a showroom assistant and then a showroom model, um, you know, literally serving coffees to the buyers. Like, I just wanted to be in an environment all the time where I'm learning. And that was the most important factor for me. Um, I literally worked at Prada on Thursdays and Saturdays on Sloan Street, which was like, you know, just for a few hours just to make extra money. Um, One of my favorite jobs while I was working in London when I was in university was working at Blaine's Fine Art with um, Harry Blaine. I love art and contemporary art. And he was so instrumental you know I was a Saturday receptionist in this gallery and he was like every time it was slow he's like Rosamond let me teach you about art and so he would teach me about the featured artists for example at that time and um you know I was really silly one that I didn't invest in art and then secondly like I would always spend it on the weekend at some club or restaurant so I was super irresponsible you know when I was in in university but you know my point is is that I tried to really use my time wisely you know, like if I was going to intern, I want to intern in places where I'm going to be surrounded by people in my industry or people that I, I am, you know, have interest in. And so even working at Prada is amazing because it's so, first of all, you're on the shop floor, you're working with customers, you start understanding how a retail brand works behind the scenes. How do they train their staff? How are they motivating their staff? Um, you know, that's how I really learn. It's all around consumer psychology and just human psychology. So that's like one of the other things, like when I look back, I'm like every job I chose was so interesting, whether it was working on the wholesale floor, serving coffees to like wholesale buyers at Burberry to working on this shop floor at Prada, everything was a learning element to it. Yeah. Um, so you've mentioned that, well, I don't know what I've read in other articles. Um, and actually, I think you probably mentioned this in the podcast today that you learned um, a lot from Tom Ford, maybe more than yeah. you did at university. Um but you know it does sound like you did learn a lot from your course um, and I think it's great how you were really able to give your input as well and able to structure it how you wanted it um, and I um, can see that you know doing your part-time jobs it's made you very commercially aware and it's taught you a lot about different cultures as well which you know um, when setting off in business it's so important to have all these um different attribute attributes you know you don't just want to be able to write a decent uh dissertation on on something you know you're not going to come out of university um being a you know on your way to be a real successful fashion expert um if you don't yeah. have that all that other experience that you've got yeah um so just off the back of that, do you think that there is um, a benefit to perhaps go, uh, not going to university and going straight into work experience? Um, or would you recommend always, you know, going to university, um, getting your degree, doing work experience on the side? 
what do you think of the the route is there a best route into um corporate fashion or um is it what is right for the person at the time so is that when it comes to school honestly i i don't have the right answer but i will tell you personally for me you know education is the one thing that no one can take away from you no one can take away from you so whether you take a break uh, and I wanted to take a break when I, when I got that job offer in second year university, I promise you, like, even in my school, everyone was like, just take it. And my parents were like, no, like you're bringing home that piece of paper and then you can do whatever you want. And so education is one thing that no one can ever take away from you. And whether you use your degree or you don't use your degree, what you learn from being in a college environment is time management, discipline, um, you know, consequence of not submitting something. Like if you don't submit that paper, there's consequence, you're gonna fail, right? Or if you're two hours late, it starts, you know, the points start getting deducted. So there's this element of time management, discipline, uh, working in groups, for example. You know, a lot of times everything is so singular when you're in kind of, you know, in younger grades, right? Everything is about your performance. But when you kind of start getting to university, everything is about a group performance. And that is really the reality of, corporate life or any entrepreneurial life it's you know as much as I might sign the dotted line it is very much in, an inclusive environment when we're talking about bouncing ideas for an event or how are we going to you know make this designer who's visiting the region have the great experience and everyone's bouncing ideas that's the reality right it's like brainstorming so I always think whether you use your degree or you don't you're there is life skills that you're going to learn being in that environment and again like that and I always say like you you just never know where your life is going to take you, where your interests are going to change. Um, and as much as I do love, I, I, I love fashion. I love shopping. I mean, I love shopping. I love all of that. But at the age of 42, I'll tell you, my interest has changed, right? Like I'm not, I'm not shopping crazy like the way I used to. My style has changed. Um, I have a real interest in art and philanthropy and all these things that now I can afford to do because I can afford to take a little bit of time off, right? Like all of this has accumulated because I put the time in, because I put the hard work in. So, um, you know, I don't have the right answer. All I know is that there is truth in having these skill sets that you learn when you're independent. And, you know, when you, when you have to, you know, there's no one telling you waking up in the morning, right? It's like, you have to be at school on time and, and perform. So, um, yeah, I don't know the right answer, but for me, I always say that education is the one thing that no one, no one ever can take away from you. And you can travel around the world, you can, whatever happens at the end of the day, you, you know, these are transferable skills. Yeah, absolutely. No, I do agree with you. I mean, I now going to um, university and doing my law degree, although I probably won't use, you know, famous quotes by um, lords, in my career, what I am learning, um, you know, how to research, how to structure an essay so it makes sense, how to write concisely. Um, I think that the, all these are fantastic things to know and what university really teaches you. So, I mean, I didn't go to university um, straight out of school. I waited until I was a little bit older. Um, and that was the right choice for me, because if I had gone when I was younger, I probably would have done something um, that 
um, wasn't perhaps right for me and I probably would have dropped out. So I do feel like it needs to be at the right time for the person, but never turn down an opportunity to learn or um, become educated in any way. Um, because, you know, what they say, knowledge is power is so true. Yeah. Like, I love, I, I love your example. It's, it's honestly like, you don't have to rush into everything either, right? Like, I love that you took the, your time off and you explored the world. And then when you're ready, you came back when you found what your real passion is. And it's why so many people take gap years because they just need a little bit of like to explore the world, be inspired. And then they go into this kind of more structured environment. But I will tell you, you know, to me, the, the people that truly make a difference when it comes to education is teachers. And when you can find a teacher or a mentor that, inspires you and you're excited to go to class and have a conversation and a debate your educational experience changes um and so you know that's why i i'm so grateful to a school like london college of fashion which is now a university of arts because because i was the second year they were so open because they were kind of just doing trial and error trying to make this course so perfect they were so open to ideas and you know how to really tailor make that educational system for me and super supportive of, you know, when I got this job with Tom Ford, like they were literally my biggest cheerleaders. They were so proud that like I'd gone from London College of Fashion straight into Tom's office. And like, it was so, it was honestly like, so it was just a really special moment to have those kind of people supporting you. Yeah. So it was all meant to be, it sounds like. Yeah. Um, so how do you think uh, graduates should go about securing a, a permanent position um, in a in a corporate fashion environment after graduating? So I think, first of all, if you can start doing internships while you are studying, I always recommend that because one, your CV starts getting, you know, a little meatier, for example, and you start seeing how organizations work. And I always say, you know, like, when I grew up, as much as I was creative and I loved fashion so much, and I like designed my first collection when I was in high school, and I had all these exciting moments. The truth of it is when you're young and you talk about fashion, people think it's only design. And when you grow up, you realize it's like a multi, multi-billion dollar industry. And if you're really good, for example, at maths, or, you know, you have a strong accounting background, you could be an accountant in a luxury, in a fashion environment, you know, like you can be in the back office. If you're a buyer and you have a great math, like math skills, I mean, buying has a lot to do with math. Like you have to know your numbers, even if you're in merchandising. Um, but if you just literally tap into the industry, the fashion industry, there are hundreds of jobs, supply chain, logistics, merchandising, visual merchandising. There's like, I mean, there's hundreds of positions. And so it's really important to interns so that you can actually see what it's like to be in that company and how many roles there are. Um, I think people just think fashion is just design, for example, right? Like they don't realize like what happens after the, after it gets designed, there has to be a pattern cutter. There needs to be samples. There needs to be, you know, a fabric buyer, someone who's working on embroidery, um, working on the, you know, in the factories, making it from start to finish, designing bags. Like if you really look at every store like what that consumer journey is there's so many different touch points and every touch point really does have um, a person behind it who's responsible for the consumer experience um you know everything from the flooring to the lighting like you could be in the world of fashion without being a designer is what i was trying to say yeah no i, I 
people kind of get carried away that they, they're like, oh, fashion means I have to, you know, be a designer and PR marketing, but there's so many roles within that sector. Yeah, I agree with what you said about trying a lot of different things. Um, somebody said that to me once when I was kind of at a crossroads with what I want, where I wanted to take my life. Um, and uh, yeah, somebody that I worked with said, Steph, you just have to try a lot of things and see what you like. I thought it was going to take a really long time getting a job, you know, putting in a year or so trying that, whether I liked it or not, do it again. But, you know, in reality, with um, the digital kind of right world that we're living in now, it's so easy to just pick up your phone um, type in, you know, a digital marketing or something like that yeah. a hashtag and then message somebody that's connected in that world to find out what their lived experience is uh, yeah. and yeah just just uh uh doing little jobs here and there I think that people are always open to sharing advice and uh, if you know if you are really passionate about something and if you can uh, if you're confident enough to ask some people you know um you may be pleasantly surprised that people will offer you um, internships and, and little things like that. So you can try it out. So don't make the same mistake I made and think that it will take, you know, a million years. And by the time you find something, it's time to retire because that's not okay. How do you think that aspiring fashion moguls can make the most out of work experience when they do get it? Um, perhaps you could give us maybe an example of somebody working in a retail environment and then a corporate environment more in like a business um office space I guess you know for I think I think for me honestly I think my mindset was really the minute I moved to London from Toronto I like all I remember honestly when I was whatever 18 or whenever I moved was like three <laughs> three dollars to a pound that's it's crazy it was probably like the height of the exchange rate at that point and I thought you know there's no way I'm gonna be able to to stay here um and you know I was so far from my family I was the first one that ever moved to go for university abroad like it was so foreign for my parents and even my extended family everyone just kind of stayed within North America like whether it was you know the states or Canada like no one had done what I'd done was just jump on a plane and be like okay I'm gonna figure it out so my mindset was like, I'm here for three years and I am going to make the most of it. And that's really what I did. And when you have your mind frame like that, whether it was a, a retail job at Prada, I just took it all in. So one day I'd be working with, you know, um, you know, high profile clients with, you know, the top saleswoman who's in the store. She had these really big, famous clients. And she'd be like, Rosemary, can you just help me with like bringing the clothes back and forth and styling them and suggesting outfits. And so then I had a kind of a understanding of how she works with styling clients. Then I'd be on the shop floor learning about bags. Then I'd be in the, you know, one day would be in the morning having a team morning breakfast with the retail staff. And I'd be learning how the retail director was literally motivating all the staff, you know, to be on the sales floor for like a long day on your feet. Um, also like, just tips on learning how to sell, like without being overly pushy, you know? And like, yeah, it was just all the, for me, I was just like, you know, I was like 19 or 20 or whatever. I was just learning. Like for me, I was like, this is great. Like I'm going to learn. I'm going to make whatever I make like a few hours on a Saturday. Um, so I think my mindset was just different. It was very open. And when you are open, you end up just absorbing 
absorbing kind of skills. How do you think that people can perhaps make make sure that they are constantly pushing out of their comfort zone? I don't know. I feel like for me, I kind of just, I get to a point where I'm like, okay, I have to make that jump. I mean, I wish I was a lot stronger and probably my timing would be so different. Like, I think a lot of the things I did happened so early in my life, right? Like traveling the world and, you know, just being exposed to so much happened like all in my 20s and 30s. So now I'm kind of like, okay, what do I want to do next? Right? Like, and honestly, like, that's kind of where I am now. I'm like, what is, what am I going to do in my next stage of my career? Because I feel like I've done all, I ticked all these boxes. I feel like now I'm up for a career change. Like, I, I feel like that's kind of where I am right now. Yeah, I suppose it's your entre- entrepreneurial spirit that's always kind of like, maybe it's not even pushing you, it's just moving you on um, to yeah. not the next thing, but, you know, just building um, building your personal brand, your professional brand just, brand, just, you know, growing as a human and taking your business with it, I suppose. And I think experience, I think experience helps so much, right? So over the years, I have become, you know, confident on stage I have become confident on tv like it's all experience over and over again you know working with the magazine for 13 years um even just doing like multiple events we were doing at least three to four events a month so like now I have an incredible events team in place that really understand how I work because I really believe in the consumer journey and you know that's the first thing every time we have a team meeting if a designer's coming or we're hosting an event the first thing I say is what is that consumer journey? Like you need to value their time because now with social media, you know, everyone's attention span is so quick. So if you're going to do a physical event, I'm always like, if I'm going to invite you to my event, I want to honor your time. So when you leave your house and you enter my event, you know, the valet is there. There's a hostess to welcome you. There's someone to escort you to the venue. And like, I want you to feel like you're in my world of that brand for those two, three hours. And so a lot of that is like really building a team of trusted and I call them partners. So I have event partners, I have florist partners, I have, you know, graphic designers, they all understand how I work. Um, and so all I really have to do is just really make a phone call and we have a team meeting, like a, a brainstorming session and, and execute the best we can for the brand. So really kind of giving those top deliverables. But I think that's why a lot of the brands have always come back to me because it's really, I, I kind of call myself like the fairy godmother of, of luxury in the region because I just want the brand to look good, you know? And so for me, it's, it's, I'm kind of there as the gel between like the consumer and the brand. I don't want anyone to overfeel like they're being sold because no one wants that anymore. You don't want to go to an event where, you know, you have pushy salespeople or anything. I just want them to fall in love with the brand. I want them to understand, you know, the inspiration of the season, um, you know, why the creative director is so influential in, in creating X, Y, and Z. So I really, for me, it's about storytelling. Yeah, I love, I love the storytelling. Love it. <laughs> um, so I'd love to talk about mentorship now as well, because I know that you have had some um, pretty good mentors. If you could perhaps say what mentorship means to you. So for me personally, it's a finding people and it doesn't have to, and that's the other thing, it doesn't have to be physically present. Like you don't have to have a physical mentor. It could be just a biography read of someone who you followed their journey or their path. So for me, mentorship is just really looking at people that have experience and they could just be a sounding board of advice or someone you just watch the way they um, conduct their business ethics, the way they, you know, are managing people and teams and learning from that, 
and every and you and for me like I have like just a few people that I kind of just keep in mind who I might follow on Instagram or I might you know have an opportunity to meet them but for me it's just being around people that I look up to and uh, and I think that's the other kind of aspect in my career I've just been very I don't know if it's lucky or whatever it is but you know to be surrounded in my early 20s with you know, the best creative director is like, when I joined Gucci, uh, the building was on Grafton Street and, you know, it was three floors and the first floor was the accessories designer. So it was like Frida Giannini, um, Alessandro McHale, you know, who's now the new creative director of, of Gucci. You know, all the accessories team was on the first floor. Then it was, uh, second floor was uh, the menswear team and Tom Ford. And then the, la- the top floor was the executive offices and, um, you know, the creatives and all of that. And the graphic designers and the image makers. And it was just to be in an environment with literally the best of the best in the world was just, I loved coming to the office. I don't even think I took a vacation because unless the office was physically closed for Christmas, because to be surrounded by just the most talented people in the world, whether it was Frida Giannini or Alessandro, who like today I'm so proud of, right? Like when I just watch what he's created and, like it's amazing. And so many designers who are still there, uh, like, you know, Davide Rene, who's like the head of women's, well, who works in women's wear as well. Like these are all the most talented designers that I've had the opportunity to work with. So I feel super, super grateful. And I think that really makes a difference to really surround yourself by people who are smarter than you, people that you want to just listen to see how they conduct meetings or they're like, I just love sitting in a meeting just to watch them bounce ideas of, you know, how a shirt was made or how the lapel falls and how much tech, you know, technical skill goes into that. So yeah, I think when it comes to mentorship, I think, you know, we're so lucky to be in an environment where you have podcasts that are free. You have YouTube channels that are free, books that are available and, you know, Netflix documentaries. I mean, there's so much out there now that people are, have access to. So you don't always need a physical person that you just follow every day it could just be like listening to whoever you're whether it's Steve Harvey or Tony Robbins or whoever you follow Jay Shetty like I always try and just listen to like even a 30-minute podcast at least once a day yeah I love that I um think that you know everything that you just said is um very very helpful I mean when I first started out in my career I worked for a hairdresser I mean I didn't work for him but I was always his junior and you know he did a lot and I look back now and I think he was he was my mentor and I learned a lot from him and I and you know I go about my day acting and doing things as he did and um I think that because I was present and at work and was really um, susceptible to, you know, just taking in everything that he had to give, I was able to absorb all this information. Um, so I, it just goes back to always giving, you know, your 110% as we were discussing in the beginning of the podcast to always show up and be present and to yeah, be open to learning things. Um, from everybody it doesn't need to be a you know organized mentorship program uh, because there are things to learn from everybody you know in all walks of life um so you know I 
I was just going to say, like, I, I think for the past maybe year and a half, probably I really got into podcasts because, you know, if I was filming or whatever it was, like, it would, you know, I'd have the makeup artist there, it'd be 30 minutes, the hair would be 30 minutes, it'd be like an hour and a half of my time, right, before yeah. I went on stage. And I would like literally blast music and try and get in the zone or whatever it was. And I was thinking, I don't need an hour and a half to get into the zone. Like I would memorize my script. I would be prepped. And then once I knew I was prepped and calm, I was like, let me just put a podcast on because it's 30 minutes. I was like, let me take it all in. Um, it was like a 30 minute short podcast. I was like, okay, at least something is going in my head. Like there's a little bit of thought process. And then the last 20 minutes before I went on stage, I would like blast the music, get in the zone. But like, I just realized I was like, I need to be smarter with my time, you know? And so I really started getting into podcasts. And so all these things are now available to, to everyone. It's on a, you know, public free domain. So I think people should really just take advantage of it if they can. Yeah. Yeah. I am productive, being efficient. I am totally done with all of that kind of stuff. Uh, when I was preparing for my uh, job interview at a law firm, you know, it's so competitive and you do need to um, prepare a lot. And, you know, I would be reading the Financial Times, trying to become very commercially aware, know what all the banks are doing, know what, you know, what's going on in every industry that a bank is supplying funds to. Um, but, you know, sometimes it would just get way too much. And I was, you know, getting a bit sick and tired of reading the Financial Times every day. Um, but, yeah, the podcast and, yes, the Netflix documentaries are such a fun way of um, of learning new things. Um, and it gives you a little bit of downtime as well. So I definitely um, think that, you know, these Netflix and podcasts are a fantastic way to better yourself whilst also taking care of your well-being as well, which is very important. Um, so what do you think is the most memorable lesson that you have learned from a mentor? Oh, from a mentor? Oh, so much. I mean... I think the cons learning about the consumer journey is, is from a retail business side. So if you're selling a product, um, so whether you're selling it online or selling it in a physical, you know, brick and mortar setup, I think that's one question I always ask over and over again is what is that consumer journey and what is every touch point? So it's the same thing if you're buying online, right? Like why do you go back to a website over and over again? It's, you know, the ease of finding the product, the returns are easy, um, the checkout's easy, it's safe payment. Like if you start looking at it, there's like a, you know, a systematic way of why you return, why do you go back? And so I think that's another aspect of one of kind of my secrets of success as well, because it's always been the first question I ask. So whenever a brand wants to work with me, or even if they're just hiring me for a one-off event, you know, I'm like, okay, it, it, you're not just hiring me and my database and my team. I was like, I'm not going to put my name to something unless I know, like, what is that consumer journey from point A to point B? Like, and when I started sitting there with brands questioning them, they're like, no one's questioned us, you know, like me telling you, like, that we're hiring you and we just want you to execute the job. And I'm like, no, like you need to go beyond the client's expectations, right? Like you need to give them a little bit more because when you give them a little bit more, they're more likely to come back. Yeah. When you have that kind of surprise element, like the thoughtfulness, um, you know, when they get something that's beautifully packaged or personal note, like all these things matter. They're these kind of emotional touch points. So I think that's one of the um, biggest lessons that I've learned from, from mentors for sure. 
Excellent. I love how you um, are, you know, you're true to yourself and, um, you know, always put the customer first, even when you are, you know, perhaps being, um, if, it, if perhaps not that easy to do, just remain true to yourself and know that it is your, you know, personal identity at the end of the day. Um, so how do you think or how can aspiring fashion entrepreneurs get themselves invited into respectable fashion and network networking events and how can they make contacts and connections whilst there? So networking is important. You have to kind of um, be able to introduce yourself. Um, and I think, you know, I think with the social media as well, like it's it's a great chance to you know, some events are public, um, you know, even if it's like an in-store shopping event, whatever, like if you're in fashion, like just go, like just go because chances are like the marketing person, will, like someone from the head office is always there, right? Like this, whether it's a retail director or the store manager, whoever it may be. So like, just get your foot in the door. So if it's fashion, it's going to like, um, you know, even if it's like a department store presentation and it's open to the public, just go be seen and, you know, try and kind of, if you can work the room, because I'm sure there's going to be like an executive there for sure. And you can just introduce yourself. What would you say is the biggest no-no to do at a networking event? I think you have to learn soft skills as well. Like you need to learn how to have basic conversation. You can't just kind of go in and be like, hire me. Um, you know, make sure you know about the company. And I think that's the other thing as well. Like, um, you know, when people come or I'm interviewing people, like it's really important that they know what I stand for and, you know, the level that I give out when we're doing an event and if they want to kind of work for us. So um, it's really important that that they are knowledgeable about the brand. So make sure, you know, whether you're going to a Prada or any department store, whatever it is, if you're going to apply, make sure that you are really prepped um, and yeah, before you go in. So I would I'd definitely say that. Excellent. Thank you. Great advice. Um, so, I mean, growing up, I um, would always kind of like read fashion magazines, Vogue, all that Mary Claire kind of yeah. thing. Um, and I can see now how social, well, I can see that social media has really, um, well, it seems to me like social media has disrupted that space. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, people can go online and look at social media on Instagram and see what people are wearing. Um I wondered what do you think is social media's role in the luxury fashion industry? The great thing about social media, I mean, one, it's accessible to everyone, right? So people can, everyone can watch the fashion show. You don't need to fly to Paris or London anymore. As, as exciting as it is to be sitting in the chair, you're literally now saving time, right? Like you can just kind of watch it in the comfort of your own home or your office. Um, the only thing I do understand is when it comes to buyers, it, you know, there is nothing like touching and feeling the product yeah. like that to me is irreplaceable. And I'm not sure um, about the actual like stats or the exact numbers, but I imagine that the top tier players of online shopping, there's a high percentage of returns. Like I, I can probably guarantee that because I know myself, like I find it impossible to buy trousers online. Like, you know, cause it's, it could be the denim could be too tight or stretchy or like I'm sometimes in between sizes. Like there's so many, like, there's so many factors that come into play. So 
I think there it's really important to have, I like the balance of brick and mortar and online. Yeah. Um, I think now my personal opinion is what's happening in luxury is that you're going to have beautiful stores that are experiential, like these incredible, um, like the incredible new Dior store that just, you know, was revamped in Paris. You're going to have the, you know, incredible LV store that's on Place Vendôme that, you know, I think I heard Bernardo know waited 15 years or there's some crazy story about how you waited so long to get that spot. Yeah. And it's the experiential part of in that world of LV. But I think you're going to have less physical brick and mortar stores um, because you're going to have this online platform, but the brick and mortar stores that you will have are going to be these substantial ones that are all about the experience. So um, you know, when you do walk into LV in Dubai Mall, for example, because I think it's probably the second busiest, largest mall, like it's the world's largest mall, and it's probably yeah. the busiest LV store by footfall. It's an experience when you walk in there. Like it, you, you forget that you're in the mall. It's so beautiful. And it's like two floors and this incredible private area and all of that. So I think that's where brands are investing in when it comes to brick and mortar, because you have this online element where people just want to buy on the click and have it delivered to their home and all of that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I love the fact that um, that people still want to go and, you know, have that experience and touch the fabric because, you know, that is fashion for me. Yeah, um, but to just look at images on the computer and, you know, choose clothes and garments like that. It's just it destroys it a little bit for me anyway. So, um, but, you know, you did ask about like social media and luxury. So I think I think now you one can have access so like this week I think everyone had their eyes in Paris for the or couture week and you know they all were able to see you know the celebrities walk you know walking the red carpet or sitting front row and it kind of just makes it more accessible um and then you get messaging across right like it's not just like you're waiting for a billboard for like the handbag of the season now you have different ways that people style it so whether it's influencers or celebrities what I kind of love about it is like there's not one way to style a look, which is kind of cool now, right? It's not the way they tell you. It's how do you style that denim jacket or, you know, that handbag. So I kind of like that it's it's open and, you know, things are changing and evolving. And it, that's just the reality of where, um, you know, the role of social media. Yeah. Um, so how do you think that successful entrepreneurs with a large social media following, um, can ensure that they are acting responsibly uh, with their influential power? So for me personally, from my point of view, I really consider who I am. And I think for a lot of people, whether you have a large following or you're an entrepreneur, or, uh, really anyone, to be honest, it's really important to actually write down who am I and what is that messaging that I want to get across? So you know, for me, I think I was really late to get on social media because I it just felt really overwhelming. And then it got to a point where like, I really had no choice but to get on. Um, and I got on it and I started writing, okay, what are my passions? So, you know, I do love fashion and beauty, but, you know, honestly, there's a really important side of me that, that really focuses on arts and culture and, you know, breast cancer awareness is so important for me. Like that's something I'm really passionate about. And um, advocating screenings. And so for me, like I started writing all these things that are, you know, what is important to Roseman and Roseman now at 42 has a lot of interests. Mm -hmm. I have, you know, interest in travel. I have interest in art. I have interest in, of course, like, you know, having my talk show that I, I 
am so lucky that Indigo Living, you know, is my partner for. And so I get to interview other female entrepreneurs. I get to be on stage, whether it's Abu Dhabi Dream Ball, um, you know, in support of Emirates Red Crescent. Like I get to do all these incredible things, but I write it down in what Roseman is. And so when I put a post on, like this week, I just, you know, did this big photo shoot for an Indian magazine. And I, you know, I got to wear, wear these beautiful, uh, you know, couture Indian outfits. And honestly, it was just fun for me. It was fun to go out of the box and wear clothes that I would probably never have a chance to wear, but it was exciting. And, and like, I enjoyed that process, but you know, probably in two days time, you're going to see an interview that I've just done with, um, you know, the creative director of Bulgari that's going to come up. So like, uh, for me, what I realize is my platform is I know who Roseman is. It's it's multiple things. This woman is multidimensional. And my Instagram is around that. Mm-hmm. And so not every day is selling a product. Not every day is going to be an interview. It's a little bit of the girl who loves fashion and beauty, who wants to be surrounded by, you know, incredible smart women, who wants to learn how, you know, I'm just in awe of, um, Lucia, she's like a cemetery. She's like a friend of mine. She's a creative director of Bulgari. But every time I meet her, I'm just in awe of her that she can just create the most beautiful mesmerizing jewelry. And so when I sat with her, you know, I was like, we're doing an interview because every time I just have lunch with her or coffee with her, and I was like, people need to know that like, you know, how you see a stone and then how her imagination, because she's so creative, comes up with this design. And so we did an interview and I just love dropping these little segments, you know, and sharing it because when else are other people going to have a chance to like meet her or hear her speak or, you know, let her tell her story. So I just realized for me, this is what works for me, but I actually took the time to write down, okay, what is Roseman's interest? And it was a lot of things, but it is a lot of things because I think I'm a multidimensional woman. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, I think that um, you are putting your genuine self on your Instagram and on your social media. And I think because you have done that, it has opened the doors for um, women around the world to be able to come into your world and just, you know, have you as a mentor. I think that personally, that is what I can see from your social media platform. And um, I think that you really use your influential power for the good um, oh, I so thank you for that no uh, so if we could now just move more into you know your business as a whole um and when you were setting it up what was required of you um in terms of you know bringing on employees or marketing or branding? Was it an easy process or were you met with any challenges, would you say? And how would you overcome these challenges? That's a brilliant question. And I will tell you, which is another kind of my piece of advice to um, young entrepreneurs that are starting a business. So when I got that call from Tiffany's, I was in my dining room in my new house when I got that Um and I remember like furniture was just arriving, you know, like I just kind of built this house, furniture's arriving. And I was sitting in the dining room when I took this phone call and there was no Zoom or anything. It was just like a conference call that I'd logged into. And I remember it being like pretty late, like it was like eight or nine o'clock at night because of the time difference in New York and, and Dubai. And um, after the VP, at, you know, the person I was speaking to from New York, I remember him saying, okay, this is what we need. We want to hire you. We heard, you know, you have this 
you understand the market, you have this background, you know how to deal with um, international luxury brands. And he starts telling me, this is what I need, you know, media relations, I want you to train the staff, it gives me the list, do this opening. And he goes, um, by the way, what's the name of your company? And I really paused and I was like, what? And he goes, yeah, yeah, this is what the budget is. So already someone is paying me for my experience and my knowledge and my time, right? And he goes, sorry, didn't he? he goes, sorry, I didn't even ask you, what's the name of your company? And I paused and I was like, I was literally doing this free for my friends. Like I couldn't tell him that. So he goes, yeah, I heard you have this luxury goods consultancy company. Like what's the name of it again? And I couldn't think of anything quick enough. So I just used my, like my dad's like middle last name. So I was like, it's RR Co. Bespoke Luxury Management. He's like, great, we'll, you know, we'll set up the contract and we'll email it to you tomorrow. And I remember putting the phone down and I literally messaged my lawyer as going, please set up a company called <laughs> RR Co. Bespoke Luxury Management, like ASAP tomorrow morning. And that's kind of how it started. But what I did was I took a notebook and I did a very honest SWOT analysis of myself. So um, there's different marketing terms or business terms um, that you can use. Um, but essentially, like there's different variations of SWOT analysis, you know, knowing your strengths and your weaknesses. And that's what I did. I said, again, who is Roseman? What am I bringing to the table? Like, what is my experience bringing to the table of this new company that I just started three minutes ago called RR and Co. And so I realized I was like, okay, my strengths are, you know, this, I had this PR marketing brain. Um, I have this great database of women in this region. I know how to work with the principals. So I, you know, I knew what the commercial aspects are, but, but what am I not good at? So what I realized, I was like, okay, I'm terrible in finance and accounting and all of this, right? Um, I need someone to deal with the daily admin of, you know, just running the business and like the sh managing the showroom and all these things that we're building. Um, I was like, okay, I need someone who's a strong writer because I need someone who's going to be writing text and copywriting and press releases. I was like, these are, and it was really hard, you know, to actually admit all your weaknesses. Like, I was like, I'm not a good writer. Okay, I need to fill that. When I started seeing the gaps in the mark, like gaps in my SWOT analysis, I was like, okay, this is my forte. This is what I'm good at. This is what I'm confident at. This is where I can make a, a healthy decision. These are my gaps. And that's how I started building my team. And so everyone who came on board had a very specific role that complemented my skill set. And I think, again, that I think is another secret to my success as well. I wasn't just hiring because she was my best friend or, you know, like I enjoyed working with her. I was like, no, no, what can you bring to the table and how are you going to compliment me? Because this is our vision. Like my vision is X, Y, and Z. And this is the end goal of the company is to make these clients when they fly from New York to Dubai, that they have the most incredible experience. They meet the most incredible dynamic women that represent the Middle East you know, and, and have a beautiful event. They enjoy their time, um, making sure that, you know, people are starting to educate what this brand is about, learning the history of Tiffany's. Like we started from that at, at 15 years ago. And so when I was hiring, I made sure that I hired an incredible writer. I make sure I had someone who, you know, had a background in luxury in the, in the marketing field who could kind of do these research reports. And I hired an admin girl and of course a finance guy to deal with like the day-to-day um, of billing and all of that and managing payroll and all of that. So that was really 
a pivotal point because I think you have to be so, so honest with yourself to know your skill set. And you can't be everything for everyone, right? Like, it's really impossible unless you're like, I mean, unless you are super talented, but just everyone only has 24 hours in the day. So it's better to invest your time and money into what you are good at and invest your time and money, invest in people. I think that, you know, if you are trying to do everything yourself, you know, you not, there is no one person that is good at everything and people do have to work as a team. I think that's really important and something that you have obviously um, done. Um, So are there any external factors um, that you need to keep an eye on in order to future proof your business, you know, going forward? So I always tell everyone you have to, and you know, for me, I work in an emerging market like the Middle East. So things are constantly, constantly changing. Laws are changing every day, company structure, employee rights, like every day something is changing. And so my best advice is to have, whether they are your partner in the business or they are um, an advisor or consultant, a mentor, whatever you want to call it, is someone you can literally bounce ideas off of um, to make sure that you're constantly evolving and, and, you know, changing the business kind of thing. Because I think a lot of times um, entrepreneurs feel like they have so much pressure, right? Like you're responsible for all these people under you, like that work for you. And so it's really important to have someone who will say yes or no, or say, you know what, it's really not viable to take this, mm-hmm. which is really hard as well, because sometimes when you're building your business, you kind of want to take like, you know, accounts that are, that are going to pay a, a crazy retainer, but right. if they're taking way too much time yeah. and it doesn't work, so you need someone who you can really trust and, and balance. And, and I promise you, if you look at any huge multi-million dollar business who you might put as a, as a, as a mentor, someone to look up to, mm-hmm. everyone has a creative and everyone has a business. So whether it's Tom Ford and Domenico DeSole, who's like the business, Tom's the creative, um, you know, every business has like a CEO brand advisor and you have the designer, you know, you rarely ever see a designer who's like the CEO and handling the business. It just doesn't work. You need that yin and yang. You need the yin and yang. Yeah. You need to find who that is. So whether they are an equal partner, whether they're an investor, whether they're just, you know, uh, an advisor or consultant or an auditor, someone, you need to kind of have someone that always balances it out. And a really good example is, of course, what happened now, like in COVID, like no one realized what would happen, right? Like where businesses would get shut down, overheads, rents salaries, like people still needed this, right? So uh, making sure that you have enough savings. I think that's the other thing. And, and, you know, I'm not saying I was great at it at all, because like, there's more outgoing than there is incoming, right? Because those bills don't stop, like the electricity bill, the phone bill, like, all there's just constantly bills going out. So you need to be able to really um, be so responsible when it comes to, to saving. Yeah, I think if you have that yin and yang thing going on as well, if you have if you're working with somebody that um, doesn't always have the same viewpoint as you, but you know that they are doing good for your business, you need to have that yeah. element of trust as well and think, you know, I have brought this person on for a reason. Now I'm going to let them, you know, help me steer in the right direction. So I think that's really yeah. good advice that you've just given there. I think it's just really important for you to, when you're building your team, you want to be really cost effective as well. Like when you're starting out, you don't want to just, 
hire a hundred people. So it's better to have a core team that you trust that bring a very specific skill set to your business. And then you start building your company from there. Okay. Quality versus quantity. Yes. <laughs> what do you think the future of luxury fashion is? I think the future of luxury fashion is, I think people are very conscious of where things are made. Mm-hmm. Um, craftsmanship. I think people want to buy pieces that they're going to, you know, keep in their closets and wear and whether they pull it out a few years later and it's still really special. Um, and, you know, like, I like that, you know, I'll pull out a dress after a few years and, you know, I have a happy memory associated with that dress. Like, so I think it comes down to craft. I think a lot of it comes down to craftsmanship. And I think now customers are more aware. So they want to know where things are made. They want to know the quality that they're, you know, what they're spending on. It's not just buying anything off the shelf. Um, I have this new show that I just started called Beauty Editor versus Science, and I'm interviewing founders of skincare and beauty brands. So we shot about six episodes already. And, um, you know, my my point with that, because I was with Harper's Bazaar for so long, and I had this beauty show with them called Bazaar Beauty. And, you know, when you're explaining to readers as a beauty editor, you know, you kind of look at how pretty the packaging is and, you know, like how it feels on the skin, the textures, but like at the end of the day, a consumer who's spending hundred dollars, $200 on a, on a cream or an eye cream, they want to know what is the science behind it? How, why is it $200? Like how far is your money going to go? Like, so I started the show because I wanted to, for, you know, viewers to have a chance to meet the, you know, the founder of 111 Skin and how this serum started from his, you know, plastic surgery unit in Harley Street. And because it was healing the skin, that's how this brand evolved. Like it was, it, they weren't planning on going into skincare, but they're one of the leaders in skincare right now. So I, I did this interview with this hus- husband and wife team, Dr. Yanis and Eva, and, you know, they're friends of mine. And and I'm so proud to see where their brand has gone. But when we did the interview, it was so important because Eva is so passionate about giving back. And, you know, there's a charity element behind her business and, you know, helping women with vocational training for uh, Women for Women, the charity in the UK. So she helps with, you know, proceeds go back into this, this charity that she believes in. And then you can easily go and meet Dr. Giannis and book an appointment with him in Harley Street. And there's this real sense of ownership with the brand and science behind the brand. And so um, that's one of the new shows that we're launching in September. And it's really like, to me, that's, I think what the luxury consumer wants. They want to know the supply chain, how these brands are coming involved and why this price tag is the price tag because there is science behind it. There is investment behind it. The packaging is a lot smarter. So it, you know, it's recyclable uh, containers. And so these, this process right now is still very costly until they figure out a, a better way to, you know, for most packaging, right? Like everything is now recyclable and yeah, definitely. I think it goes back to what you were saying earlier about um, consumers not wanting to be sold to. They want to know, as you were saying, exactly what is in that product um, and that it's genuinely made for them. Um, and that they also want to know like, who is behind the brand. No filter. Now into the you know well-being and fashion parts of the episode. Um, what do you think the importance of feeling and looking uh, your best 
in you know a professional setting is so for me I think it's really important again you have to know your who you are and your brand so um for me I tend to dress a little bit more conservatively and more on the modest side of dressing and I always think you know there's a place of dressing for everything so that's what I believe right like I think there's a way to dress in the office which is just more um simple you know not you know provocative or anything like I think that there should be there's dressing for every occasion. That's what I believe. Yeah. And I think, you know, sadly, we, we are in a world where it is based on first impressions. So um, I think, you know, when you are going for a job interview, don't wear anything pattern, you know, go very kind of monochrome, look uh, polished, simple, nothing too tight. Like just do the best you can so your personality comes out and you're not kind of over, you know, not your, your clothes shouldn't be overbearing. So do you think that's what you would find in, say, a power woman's wardrobe? I think so. Definitely. So what advice do you have for women who work in, say, a traditionally male-dominated profession, but do aspire to dress creatively, but still very elegantly and modest, uh, but concerned that she may um, be unfairly stereotyped? What do you think the right thing to do is there? Listen, I think there's so many incredible designers right now. Like, you know, I love wearing pantsuits. So I wear a lot of Raseel. She's a, a brilliant UK designer. She's on matches. I have so many of her suits and they're all bright colors, like reds and purples. And, um, you know, I have a black tuxedo from her. And like, I can wear that in a man's world, but express my own way of dressing. So like I can wear a bright red suit with a wide leg pant and I'm still dressed modestly. I have that touch of fashion and creativity because it's a pop of color. Um, Her cuts are super feminine, but still like really classic. And I can turn it into my own ways. I can roll up the sleeves, wear chunkier uh, bracelets, or, you know, there's so many ways to express yourself without, um, without dressing provocatively. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. Uh, what do you think should be done to promote entrepreneurial women in you know the fashion industry what what more do you think could be done to you know help move that along no I mean I think as I think as I'm more alert to always looking at different designers or so many people come up you know on my desk or email me so I'm always looking at um, small businesses but there are so many organizations like there's one called Thai which I actually just spoke at and um, they, I think they have a chapter, they have chapters all over the world, but like majority of them, like 90% of them were women and they're all women in small business. And I just think that there's so many organizations there that you just have to tap into and do a little bit of research. So whether it's on LinkedIn or there's so many platforms out there. And I think it's, you have to take the onus on yourself is to find them, introduce yourself, you know, join, join groups, join committees, um, join organization, sorry, join, you know, communities and join organizations because I was invited to speak to Thai and I honestly didn't know who they were until I was invited. And then I started researching them and they're actually a company based out of Silicon Valley, helping small businesses, um, teaching them how to pitch, how to fundraise. And they have a competition at the end and they help you do your business plan. And they were just such an incredible wealth of knowledge all for free. Um, you know, the, the mentors that they have are all people that have exited businesses for millions. And what I realized is like, when I spoke in that room, I was just blown away that one, it was a sea of incredible women 
that all had small businesses from stationery to kid shop to clothing, um, all had niche, you know, niche points of view. Everyone was there to learn. And I just thought, you know, this is so amazing. Like that something like an organization like this has a chapter in Dubai and I'm sure they have a chapter in the UK and, and America as well, because they are like in like the East coast as well. Cause they started out of, um, out of Silicon Valley. So I think, I think, I'm lucky that I get to, you know, people reach out to me and I always get to see different businesses. But after going to this event, like a few months ago, I realized that there's so much out there and it's, you know, you have to take the onus to really, um, fight the good you know, fights along with, yeah, it. yeah, definitely. Um, and what's I, great is honestly, when you're there, you end up networking, right? Yeah. Like, so if you're there, small business, you find other people that you have, um, synergy with. I will put um, the links to everything that you've mentioned in terms of like tie in the show notes for people to check out if they want to. Um, so how do you maintain a healthy work-life balance? Or do you feel that because you do have an entrepreneurial spirit that you can kind of like keep on going and going and going and, and never get, you know, too drained? Oh, <laughs> so, no, I, I can't keep going and going. So I... I really define what my public life is and what my private life is. So, you know, when I'm at home, I really try and shut social media. Like I really won't do stories or anything like that. Like that is my private time. Um, I don't really record my family. Like, you know, maybe once in a blue moon, you'll see my mom. Um, But other than that, like, you know, my family is my sanctuary. They're my their home for me, they're, they're who keep me grounded. I think the only person you'll really see on my social media when it comes to family is my brother because he's um, an actor and a screenwriter. So he's in the media field anyway. So we might, you know, do events together. We might travel together for film festivals and all of that. But like, he's kind of the only one you'll see in my family. So I really try and define um, what is my private life and what is my public life. And I think when you can cap time for social media and, and, private life that gives you a little balance I think the other thing is for me um, I personally hate working out so I found this incredible Pilates teacher and um, someone introduced me to her because I had like a back injury and she was an injury specialist and she just moved here from New York and her and I um, and I tag her a lot Cecile like her and I just get along so well and I just realized like my three, four times, if, if I, could, I do three times a week for sure, if I can maybe add an extra, I will, but like that hour and a half is like, no one can like bother me. So I might do a class super early in the morning or I might do it at the end of the day, but like, I really won't cancel for her unless like cancel my appointment with her, unless it is like an emergency. Like I will make sure that that is my hour, hour and a half, because when I leave her class, I feel a million times better. Like my posture is straight, my breathing is better. Like I'm relaxed because it's just a one-on-one class. So I just started realizing I have to prioritize um, and say no when I have to say no. Um, but yeah, like I prioritize the plotties, I prioritize what my public and work life is. And I think the other thing with social media, when when Instagram first started, everyone thought it was like instant. Like you just, you know, you could only post with the live video feed, right? Now what I do is like if I'm going to an event. Um, like so earlier today I actually had an event that I was doing like a personal appearance at and so I took all the photos like you know met met kind of the people that I had to meet or like the the shoppers who came to see me and stuff I did all the photos and that was it I put my phone away I enjoyed the rest of the event and now I'll kind of go back on the phone pick the best photos explain the description of the event like I kind of just now 
do things at a pace where I'm not rushing to just upload anything. Uh And I think that's another kind of piece of advice for, for everyone is like, it doesn't have to be so instant. Like it can, you know, take the photos, do everything, but, you know, really spend time to look at the photo, make sure there's, you know, that everyone looks good. If you're doing a group shot, making sure that the background is clear. Like some people are like kind of caught in the back of a photo and they don't want to be in your Instagram photo. So like being really conscious of your environment. So I, I personally take an time, extra time to make sure I go through those photos and making sure that if I'm doing a group shot, you know, everyone looks nice. Yeah. Yeah. That's great advice. Thank you. Um, so approaching the end of the interview now. Um, so my final question is, uh, what is your one piece of luxury that you just cannot live without? Oh, I don't even know. See, that's like a tough one, like an actual item or like, Uh, no, it doesn't have to be an item to me. Luxury can mean so many things. Like, of course, um, I love, you know, luxury fashion and things like that. I mean, time is a massive kind of like thing for me I love having time to do the things that I want to do and you know in this fast-paced world that we live in time is so precious Um, and it kind of links back into what you were saying um, you know in what we were just talking about being able to say no to things that you don't want to do Um, so time is is one for me I mean I'm I love a good shoe as well I think the shoes are so important I mean, I think time is, um, yeah, it's the one thing that I think is, you know, what I always say is everyone has the same 24 hours in the day. You know, it's the one thing that God has given everyone equally. And so, you know, you have to decide how you want to spend it. So, you know, sometimes, honestly, like sometimes I've been working like a crazy week and on the weekend, I literally will sleep in bed like for half the day. But I, when I do wake up and I'm like, I might get out of bed for a cup of tea and then crawl back in bed. But like when I'm up, I feel like 10 years younger because I've slept and like, you know, so I just, for me, like, I think just having like, yeah, having time, having that luxury to like, you know, travel and see my family. And I, I I honestly, I sometimes just thank God for Emirates Airlines because it's a direct flight to Toronto. So sometimes if I'd have like two days off or a long weekend, I was like, I'd rather just spend four or five days with my family, like, and just relax and just hang out with them and sit in the garden with my mom, because that is the most important thing, right? Like all this like flashy red carpet and all that stuff is fun. But like now, anytime I have chunks of time, I really just want to be like with my elderly parents and enjoy whatever they want to do. And so, you know, the old me 10 years ago or 20 years ago, would be like, Oh, I'm just going to wait till the summer to see them. And now I don't do that. I literally try and see them for short trips when I can, I'd rather see them more frequently, even if it's less often like by days, but I see them more frequently throughout the year. And that's really made such a big difference not only for them because they're elderly but they have someone you know they look forward to seeing the grandkids they look forward to seeing my brother myself um but these are the things that I've actually just focused on yeah this is the point that I try to um that I try to really drive home a lot of the things that I love are luxury if you like but they're also essentials um spending time with your family luxury I suppose um because you know, it's such a, a precious thing, but it's essential. And, you know, I like to use a different example, um, taking care of my skin and my hair. Yes, it is a luxury, but it's also very essential to do these things because it does make you look and feel 
good which which, which I think is you know you can't go through life not feeling great and if it is you know a luxury thing that you need to do it's an essential thing so I do think that um, by labeling something luxury sometimes it makes it sound like you don't need it because it's you know above and beyond but um, it's an essential thing so there's really only one thing left for me to do, and that is to say thank you ever so much for bringing us into your world and, you know, just, just giving so much of your valuable, invaluable advice. You know, it's um, really appreciate you coming on the show and I hope you had a good time chatting and giving your Well, advice. thank you for having me. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for um, interviewing me so well. It was so nice to speak to you. And your story is so inspirational as well. Honestly, I, you know, when you were telling me about when you traveled to LA, I remember when I, um, I was leaving Gucci and Tom Ford was just, you know, he, they, they'd had this takeover by caring group and he had a, like a year that he couldn't work. And so I was, he's like, Rosman, why don't you just relax for a year? And then you can join my company. I was in my early twenties. I was like, I need to work. And so Gucci had offered for me to join the design team in Milan. And I actually jumped at the chance. So I, I moved to Milan for a year. And so when you were telling me the LA story, it reminded me of my time going to Milan because I remember asking Mr. Ford, I was like, should I go to Italy? And he said, you know, I did it. It's try it because, you know, when else are you going to be able to like see the world? And so um, I just love that, you know, you made that jump to go to the US and I did the jump to go to Italy. And even though I, I did move back to London, it was such an incredible time to like explore a new culture, a new working environment, meet new people and, and really explore Italy as well. So I'm super proud of your story as well. Thank you so much. You know, I get inspiration from, you know, following people like yourself and just surrounding myself with um, people that I, you know, aspire to be like. And, you know, I think it creates a ripple effect. So thank you for inspiring me to inspire you, I suppose. Well, thank you for having me. And thank you to everyone for tuning in to another episode of Hashtag No Filter. And we'll see you back here next time. Please help me, help me, help me.